Welcome to the Holistic Healing Project, a podcast that explores how we can optimize our health, support our body's natural ability to heal, and deepen our relationships to ourselves, each other, and the planet. I'm your host, Dr. Laura MacDonald, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations with a range of experts and thought leaders to empower and inspire you on your own journey of healing. Welcome back to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here and I hope you're having a good week so far. So this week I'm sharing a conversation all about cannabis and I'm joined by Dr. Danny Gordon, an integrative medical doctor and a cannabis expert. Danny has co-founded the UK Medical Cannabis Clinician Society and she's also helped set up the UK's first cannabis clinics. She also works really hard to support drug policy reform both in the UK and worldwide. So this is a fascinating conversation. We dive into medical cannabis and the various indications for it. We talk about CBD oil and the wellness industry. And we also talk about the cannabis plant and the various cannabinoids in terms of things like CBD and THC and the endocannabinoid system, which is this incredible system that we have in our human body, which enables these cannabinoids to work on our body to support our health and our wellness. And who knows what else in the future, there is some evidence that it can really help support certain conditions. And personally, I'm really interested in the research on cannabis and cancer, although it's pretty preliminary, it's fascinating. So I did ask Danny a little bit about that. Um, We also talk about the legality of medical cannabis and prescribing issues in the UK, what she's finding, what she's coming up against. So it's a really rich, varied conversation and I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please just take a moment to rate and review. And I'll be back again with more podcast episodes in the near future. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I've been wanting to speak to you for ages. You you are such an inspiration. I love everything you're doing. And the way Thank that you've you. gone into cannabis medicine fascinates me. The fact you've got a book out <laughs> coming out is wonderful. So congratulations. So thank yeah, you. just the biggest thank you for being here. My pleasure. So for anyone listening who hasn't come across you before, you are double board certified and that means that you have two qualifications in family medicine and then also in integrative medicine and then you've moved into the field of cannabis medicine and CBD. So I'd love to just start by first finding out what does integrative medicine mean because in the UK we don't have that as a um, speciality that's recognized. So integrative medicine is something I did. It's a qualification I did in the U.S. It's basically evidence-based natural medicine combined with conventional medicine. So the focuses of the training and the specialty itself are different areas within natural medicine that does have a lot of evidence. So I do a lot of mind-body medicine. So I teach people how to calm their minds, how to um, meditate, how to use mindfulness practices, um, how to use relaxation therapies. And the other kind of arm of integrated medicine that I really focus on is botanical medicine. And of course, botanical medicine is plant medicine. And that's really how I got into cannabis. So cannabis is one of the plants that I use. And um, really, integrated medicine as a whole is really focused on giving the best care, the best holistic care to patients. And that's why it fits in so well with primary care, uh, family medicine, because when patients come to see us, Lauren, as you know, 
they have so many overlapping issues. And um, of course, I'm not against using drug therapy when we need to. But if we don't need to, if there's another way or if we can use the drug therapy and something else that's more natural um, to, to help people in a more holistic fashion, to give them less side effects, to give them still a great outcome, that's really the focus of integrated medicine. So it is a fully qualified uh, specialty of conventional medicine in the United States. You have to be a medical doctor to take the training and then it's, it's, a, it's a full residency program now, um, just like any other specialty. So... So that's my background. Um, I got into it because I've always been interested in holistic medicine. And when I went to medical school 15 years ago now, I thought that I was going to learn a lot of these things and how to make people healthy and how to empower people about their health and their wellness and their, just their general health and well-being. And instead, what I learned is I learned really a disease management system and a really big focus on drugs, which of course we really need in many circumstances. And thank God we have it. But what I was seeing when I got into practice almost 10 years ago was my patients were not responding just to drugs for a lot of these chronic conditions for stress, anxiety, insomnia, uh, burnout, um, even things like autoimmune diseases and all these other things I was seeing, these chronic conditions they, they wanted something something that was going to give them less side effects, maybe to add to a drug therapy, maybe sometimes to replace a drug therapy. Um, and that's really how I've started doing more integrated medicine in my practice. Went to the States, took all the training, got qualified. And um, the last one that I actually introduced was, was cannabis. And what led you to bring that into your practice? Was it patient stories or a personal story? Yeah, it was a combination. So, you know, really, ever since I graduated 10 years ago, there's been a lot of patients in my practice using cannabis. I would say medicinally, even though they didn't have a prescription. And back then, there really wasn't a prescription. There was a compassionate care kind of exemption in Canada way back then that said if you had a very serious painful chronic condition and epilepsy was also included that you could grow a few plants you could apply to the government it was like a human rights case that went to the high courts so I did have a few patients who were growing a bit of their own cannabis and these patients had chronic pain um, some of them had neurological conditions some of them had mental health conditions um, I had one community I worked in in British Columbia, they had an herbalist who was not a medical person, but he was just a self-taught herbalist who had been passed down this knowledge in his family. And he was actually making some of my my patients who were palliative, who were at the end of their life with various conditions, neurological, progressive conditions, um, cancers that were very advanced stage, with uh, cannabis tinctures to decrease the amount of morphine they had to take for their pain and their comfort. And and so there was all these sources of, of cannabis just floating around and my patients were really educating me. So I guess about six years ago, I started really ed educating myself and started learning about the difference between THC and CBD. And I still wasn't giving a prescription because again, the, the market hadn't really evolved to that yet. Um, but I was saying things to my patients like, well, can you grow something that, do you think you can find a way to grow something that's high in this, higher in this thing called CBD? Like we barely really knew anything about it at that point, but I was just kind of dabbling around and trying to, um, create these homegrown solutions for them. And then I wrote my first prescription. I started to get asked to participate in some cannabis clinics. The first few I got asked 
I turned down because it was a dispensary model and it was like a five minute consultation. It was really just kind of a treadmill um, for patients. So I turned it down and that was, that was way back in 2014, 2013, 2014. And then I was approached again in 2016. This time I said yes, and I joined a practice. Um, so I had my own practice within this uh, cannabinoid clinic. And I did my practice kind of my own way. I only saw patients who had a referral from another doctor to see me. I really monitored what strains they were using and really kind of had more of a botanical medicine approach and also give them integrated medicine therapies to go along uh, with their cannabis. And it just started working so well for people. I saw thousands of people like this. Cannabis was able to provide relief, symptom relief for some of my patients who had failed every drug therapy for a lot of these chronic conditions, both mental health conditions, physical conditions. It wasn't curing them, but it was literally transforming their life, their quality of life in a way that nothing outside ever prescribed is a single intervention in conventional medicine ever had, or even as a single herbal intervention ever had. So I just became a real advocate for patients being able to access cannabinoid therapy. Can we just take it right back to the basic science? Because there's a reason that cannabinoids work on the human body, isn't it? And I know we weren't yeah. taught it at medical school. This is all new to me. So it'd be wonderful if you could dive into the endocannabinoid system and just explain to the listeners just why cannabis works on the human body. So as you said, Lauren, we didn't learn about this in medical school. And that's why cannabis was really the last thing to add on to my botanical medicine practice because I had a lot of misinformation about cannabis. I had been told in medical school, as I'm sure you probably were, that cannabis was a drug of abuse. It had no medicinal value. It had no place in medicine. And in fact, it could make our patients go crazy, get psychotic. Um, it was a drug to be feared and to be put on the addictions. You, oh, this person has to go to the addictions medicine specialist if they're using cannabis every day. So that's the information we got told. And then, um, as I really educated myself about cannabinoids and cannabis, I discovered that, yes, we have our own system in the body and in the brain that makes our own cannabis-like peptides, molecules, little chemicals that float around in the brain and the body. It's just like our endorphin system. We have an endorphin system that makes us feel good. And that's why things like morphine work on the body. And we have um, a stress response system like adrenaline and cortisol. That's why we can respond under threat and run away from a tiger. And the system that produces these type of cannabis-like chemicals, it's really, really unique in that it almost acts as a skin, like a layer that sits over top of all of the other hormone systems and basically a brain chemical systems in the body. So it's almost like the orchestrator of all of these other systems. So it almost is one level above the serotonin or the happy hormone system, the stress response system. And it regulates. It's kind of like the conductor, um, if you will. And it kind of just helps keep everything in balance in our brain and in our body. So it's the balancing system in our brain and our body. When I first found out about this, I was completely shocked because I said, oh my God, how can there be this overarching balancing system in our brains and our bodies that is involved by making cannabis-like chemicals and we don't know about it or we didn't learn about it? Because in fact, we did know about it, but we just weren't taught about it. So we've known about this since 1990 um, when they discovered this system. What does this system actually do? Well, it's involved from everything from sleep-wake cycles. So when you get to sleep, stay asleep 
helping recover from trauma. So if we have a traumatic thing happen to us, whether it's a mental trauma or a physical trauma, it helps the brain recover quicker. It is involved with appetite regulation. It's involved in immune system regulation. So when the immune system is performing too high, when we have this autoimmune response, like in uh, inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid arthritis, these types of things, or if the immune system is not functioning enough, so we have an underperforming immune system, it helps in what's called um, programmed cell death. So apoptosis, so if a, if a cell is not performing well and it's turning into like a cancer cell or a precancer cell, it gets rid of it. So it's involved in every system. It's involved in our gut. <laughs> Literally every body system has cannabinoids functioning in them, in our female reproductive system, in our stress response system. You name it, then the cannabinoid family, the cannabis-like chemicals we make are playing a role. And the cool thing is, is we really evolved with the cannabis plant over the millions of years. So the, the molecules, the chemicals that the cannabis plant makes in nature, they can actually be used in our body in a very similar, not exactly the same, but a similar way that our natural cannabis-like chemicals are used. So when our system is getting out of balance for whatever reason, like many systems in our brain and our body become out of balance, then we can use um, what's called plant cannabinoids or phytocannabinoids, so THC, CBD, and the hundreds of other compounds in the plant, um, and we can put them in our body and it has a similar effect on this system. It's so incredible and I just can't believe we weren't taught about it. It's crazy. You know, this incredible master conductor that can do all mm -hmm. of these things. You've mentioned THC and CBD quite a few times. And I know that for some people maybe who've not really heard much about cannabis or maybe still think of cannabis as, you know, weed or, yeah. you know, it's recreational really. I'd love yeah. to explore a little bit more about the actual compounds of this incredible plant because I know there's lots of words that are used, things like hemp, marijuana, mm -hmm. and then you've got the THC and CBD. So if you could just give us a breakdown of those, that'd be really helpful. So the first thing to, to probably kind of clarify is what is the difference between marijuana and cannabis? So marijuana is um, another term for the cannabis plant. It's not really a technical term. I don't like to use the term marijuana anymore after I found out the roots of the word and how the roots of the word were fine, but how it was then utilized historically is not so fine. So marijuana was actually a slang word in Spanish that was used by uh, the Mexican population to refer to cannabis. That's fine. But in the 1920s, this word was really usurped by the powers that be in the US, government forces, so forth, to really portray cannabis as in quite a demonizing, quite racist fashion. So marijuana craze, marijuana rage. Um, and it was used in a quite racist, um, anti-black, anti-Mexican campaign uh, against the plant, saying this plant was corrupting uh, the white youth, saying this plant was creating hysteria and violence and rage. And all these things that actually we know don't happen with the cannabis plant. Yes, THC can make you feel stoned if you take a lot of it. But a lot of these other things that were being um, associated with the plant were completely incorrect. And it was really a mass information campaign against the plant. So I don't like the term marijuana because of that, because of those historical roots. So cannabis is really the name that I prefer. So cannabis is the name for all of the different types of the plant. So you can have cannabis plant that is classified as a hemp plant. And what that means is the hemp is a variety of the cannabis plant that's been bred a certain way over many, many years 
do contain really low amounts of THC, the stuff that people associate with making them feel high. So it's very tiny amount of THC and very high amounts of other plant chemicals like CBD, the one that doesn't make you feel high, and many others. And also it is used to make rope fiber. So hemp clothing, um, hemp hearts that you eat, you find them at Whole Foods grocery stores now everywhere. Do you know what? I went to um, see a friend the other day. She was staying at an Airbnb and the Airbnb was made of, is it called hempcrete? It's like concrete, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it was incredible. It's such a beautiful home and it's actually a really nice finish as well. Hempcrete's amazing. So exactly. So building materials, there's actually batteries that you can make now out of hemp. So hemp is just such an incredible material. And that's another reason I love the cannabis plant, because we're in an age now where we want to try to be sustainable as well as being healthy. And that's often really hard with a lot of the health foods that we have. But cannabis, you can use the whole plant. You can use it for hempcrete. You can use it to produce batteries and store energy. Um, You can use it to make clothing, (laughs) you can ingest it, you can eat it, certain parts of the plant. So so yeah, so that's really hemp. Hemp and cannabis with high THC, they're they're basically regulated differently by governments and stuff. So basically you can grow hemp as a farmer in many places, but you can't grow cannabis that has lots of that high THC to make people feel high. So the cannabis that had really that had higher THC naturally, the THC actually wasn't that high naturally, but over the years on the black market, they bred this plant on the drug, what we call the drug strain. And over time, this is a simplification, but basically over time what happened is people who wanted to buy cannabis illegally in order to you know get into an altered state or get high, of course, they want really, really high THC cannabis. So back in the 60s when you know our parents and maybe even our grandparents were smoking weed, they were probably consuming cannabis that had maybe 3 to 6% THC. So it, it wouldn't really make them very high. But now in the modern day on the black market, you get cannabis that has been bred to have um, between 20 to 30% THC. So it gets you really high. And that's been part of the reason why we think that on the kind of the black market side, the non-medicinal side of cannabis, people have had more and more adverse reactions to this type of drug strain cannabis over the years because the THC levels are just so high. And cannabis is a power plant. So THC can make you feel high in, and it does make you feel high in large amounts. However, it's also a medicinal compound in very small controlled amounts for many different types of chronic diseases. So for example, just like any other power plant, like the cacao plant, even like coffee that I'm drinking now, if you overuse these very powerful plant chemicals, they become a negative. And that's what we've seen over time with THC and breeding of these high strains in the black market to just basically make people high without any um, worrying about any medicinal value the plant might have. So that's kind of the historical context of cannabis as a whole. (laughs) So it's so interesting and it really highlights why at medical school we were taught cannabis equals potential psychosis it should Mm -hmm. be feared you need to be concerned if people are smoking cannabis but actually at its roots at its origins it was you know it could have had so much potential for medicine and actually by making it illegal it was actually driven the THC was driven up which I didn't realize that's really interesting yes exactly exactly and I do a lot of work in drug reform drug policy reform and this is why because a lot of these decisions governments make trying to think that they're doing something good end up really causing more harm so the harm reduction approach that I'm really fond of is really hurt by some of these changes that people made trying to protect a population 
That's really yeah, helpful. Thank you. I know that you've just written a book called The CBD Bible. So if we focus um, on CBD um, first, before we get into medical medicinal cannabis, that you've mentioned some conditions that you treat people with using CBD. And I know CBD now you can buy in Holland and Barrett and it's very, you know, accessible in the UK. What are the common conditions that you recommend CBD for? And is it for everybody, even people who feel relatively well? Is it something that you encourage everyone to try? What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. So first of all, the CBD Bible, it's, it is about CBD and all of the other plant chemicals as well and medical cannabis. But of course, for publishing purposes, the CBD Bible sounded a lot better than the medical. I wanted to call it the medicinal cannabis Bible. And my publishers were like, it's not quite as catchy. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so when I treat people in a medical context, so I do work on the medical side where I'm prescribing people things like drugs and botanicals, including medical cannabis. And then I do work on the wellness side where I put on my wellness hat and I do corporate wellness. I do a lot of, um, work in the, the non-prescription space. So when I have my medical hat on and I'm in my medical clinic and I'm giving someone a prescription for something, medical cannabis always has a little bit of THC in it, normally, most most strains that we would use. So what I usually do is I start with a high CBD, low THC in the medical context for most conditions, especially if someone has never tried cannabis ever. Because the last thing I want to do is for them to leave the clinic with this prescription and they might get some pain relief benefit, but they feel high. With medical cannabis, most of my patients, pretty much all of them, they do not want to feel high. They do not want to feel out of control. They just want to manage their symptoms, whether it's pain, spasticity, whatever it is. So the typical person who comes to see us in a cannabis clinic, um, and there's many of them now, would come for chronic pain conditions, neurological conditions, again, not a cure, but to help with things like everything from epilepsy, so seizure disorders, to symptoms of um, Parkinson's disease, symptom control multiple sclerosis, symptom control. I also see a lot of mental health conditions. So treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant anxiety, PTSD, difficult to treat sleeping problems, insomnia. I also see people with autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel, ulcerative colitis, um, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. And that's when the immune system gets too high. And that's another set of conditions where a lot of times I'm adding a high CBD cannabis product, usually in an oil or a capsule, to a lot of times they've already been on drug therapy and on steroids. So sometimes we're trying to get them down on their steroids and try to take them up on something like uh, cannabis, which is a natural anti-inflammatory, to help um, with their symptom control, but also their side effect profile, because steroids make people feel really awful and they have a lot of really bad long-term side effects. The ways that we use high CBD medical cannabis is so varied. Um, I do a lot of training for doctors now. And a lot of them will say the first time we meet, how can it work for all these things? It must be a snake oil. Like it's not possible. But the reason it is possible, again, is because back to this endocannabinoid system, we have this system in our body that's using these, these chemicals from the plant in the gut, in our brain, you know, on pain pathways in the nervous system. So that is why it works in so many things, because it's doing so many jobs in the brain and the body. Just out of interest on this point, I know that potentially cannabis can help with inflammation and reducing the cytokine storm, which has been talked about a lot with COVID. Has anyone approached you and said, do you think that cannabis could be helpful with patients with COVID? 
yes, it's um, very early on in the epidemic. I was contacted quite a bit. And of course, my my early on advice was very, very cautious. And it was mostly received in a positive manner. But of course, I did get some people who say, cannabis cures everything. I can't believe you're saying you're not, you know, shouting from the rooftops and it's going to cure COVID. So of course, everyone, you know, COVID is a really scary time for people. And everyone wants this amazing plant, which does so many other amazing things, to be the cure for COVID. Um, it's not the cure for COVID, but certainly um, now that we understand the cytokine storm now, and even very early on, I was telling my patients definitely like updose your your um, vitamin D and your other supplements that can potentially help the immune system, like liposomal vitamin C, these types of things. But we didn't know what the cannabinoids were going to do. Since then, we think that based on basically taking what we know about the cytokine storm, I'm saying steroids like dexamethasone, this steroid drug, it works to help reduce the death rate of COVID when people are really sick already. Well, CBD can do something very similar to dexamethasone. We use CBD in children who need dexamethasone for a specific type of uh, immune responsive seizure disorder, epilepsy. So that's really interesting. We use it for that. And we transition them onto CBD because it's less toxic for these children. So yes, I think it may have a role, but we have no idea about the dosing, at what stage someone should start high dosing compared to the dexamethasone. We don't really have any idea of that yet. As far as THC goes, I also you know get a lot of questions about, well, I like to use THC recreationally or I use it medicinally and I use very high THC from really bad chronic pain because some people who use high THC are quite used to it and they don't feel high anymore from it. And some people's endocannabinoid system is slightly different. So they might be able to tolerate high THC. Whereas for me personally, even a little bit of THC makes me feel really wonky. I have tried THC cannabis. I think it's, it's, it's good to, to know what it feels like for me. I don't like it, but I know other people who could have the same amount of THC as I took and feel completely normal, but they have chronic pain. They have other things going on. So as far as the THC goes, how that's going to affect COVID, we still don't know. There was a really early study that came out early in the pandemic about rats but it was using the influenza virus. So we're injecting uh, rats who had influenza, so not COVID, but another respiratory disease, with THC. And they responded less well to the virus. So I was telling my patients who were smoking large amounts of THC recreationally as a harm reduction approach, just really cut back. And I was telling patients who were using THC medicinally to just use the amount that controls your symptoms, but really don't overdo it. Don't go towards recreational doses um, because we didn't know and we still don't really know. Mm. So the current guidance I'm giving people is if you're taking medical cannabis and you have COVID, there seems to be no reason to stop your therapy, continue your therapy. And if you end up with this um, very unfortunate condition, you know, the cytokine storm and you're in the hospital, probably still be given dexamethasone because they know how to dose it a lot better than if we add CBD. We just don't know yet. But there's, there's a lot of uh, people working on this question. And I think in the next six to 12 months, we're going to have some answers potentially. It's interesting everything you said about, it's just so complex, isn't it? The immune system. Back five years ago when I had cancer, I was looking at cannabis. Obviously, it's something that comes up. I think most cancer patients would f- will find their way towards cannabis. Yes. And obviously, it's there's not that many randomized controlled trials. There's not that much evidence out there. And yet there's quite a lot of 
you know, patient stories that saying, yes, it worked for me. So I, mm-hmm. I started looking, but this was back in 2014. Cannabis prescription wasn't legal in the UK yes. then. Um, and it was difficult because I was trying to get information. But whenever I went to speak to CBD dispensary people, they said because of the Cancer Act, they couldn't give me any information. Yes. So then obviously I was saying to Google and it was just really, really difficult. And then I knew how difficult it was to just with my immune system because I was on an immune about to start an immunotherapy drug I had this I wasn't sure whether I was going to end up suppressing the drug that I actually wanted to be ramping up my immune system so I I ended up walking away from cannabis but I've just stayed fascinated by the plant since then because obviously there's so much promise for it well interestingly Lauren the type of cancer that you had because I know you had melanoma correct yeah. That is one of the only reasons we, I'm very, very cautious with cannabis, with cancer patients, because I do a lot of what's called adjunct therapy with cancer patients. So we don't substitute their chemotherapy for, for cannabis. I don't recommend that. But I add on cannabis to help with their symptom control, their quality of life, their nausea. And I've had patients tell me, you know, Dr. Gordon, without the cannabis, I would not have been able to finish my chemotherapy. So I think it's improved my outcomes. But the only thing that we have to be really careful of, and I've actually turned down patients similar to you who were young, healthy, they had curative chances for melanoma. Because of the immunotherapy, we don't know if it's going to be helpful or harmful, and we don't know what CBD and THC ratio for that specific immunotherapy. And it's non-small cell lung cancer and and melanoma uh, immunotherapy that seems to be the biggest question marks. So personally, I don't prescribe until they're finished. And then more just CBD for um, the neuropathy that people can get after chemotherapy, depending on what agency we're on. So it's really complicated. Yeah, no, because I, I did actually eventually start taking CBD, but years after I'd been in remission. And that was because I broke my leg yeah. and that was for the pain of my leg. The pain. That, yeah, rather yeah. than the cancer. But yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm, it's in a field that I'm so interested in. Is there more research looking at cancer and cannabis? Is it an area of growing research? It's an area of intense research. And one of the reasons why is um, the pharmaceutical companies, of course, see great promise in this area. Because if you're going to develop a, you know, a drug development funnel, that's like a 10-year, 15-year process. And, and cancer is such um, a common problem affecting so many people. And a lot of the treatments aren't, aren't great. I mean, a lot of treatments are amazing for cure or remission, but they have so many side effects. So we're getting into the age of really targeted cancer therapies now, like individualized medicine. And they're looking at different kind of cannabis-like molecules now in the area of cancer. So I think there's a lot to come. Well, I'll be watching it with eager eyes because there's so much hope there as well. And I just think if there is something in there for patients, it'll be wonderful in the future. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking a lot about medicinal cannabis and you've listed off a huge array of conditions it can help with. And then you mentioned on the other side, you have your wellness hat that you put on. Can you describe a little bit about that? What are the common conditions that you help with? And is it something that most people could maybe benefit from? On the wellness side, really, you know, what we're talking about is just quality of life and more of a lifestyle kind of um, wellness regimen. So, you know, the products that are on the shelf over the counter, a lot of them are really, well, they're very varied. So there's this huge variety of products, huge variety of how well they're going to be absorbed, huge variety of dosages. And really there's no hard and fast rules with CBD, like who can use it, who can't when it comes to the wellness doses, because the doses are generally quite low and quite safe and it doesn't have the THC or only in tiny, tiny little amounts. So it's not going to make you feel high. So there's very little reason why someone couldn't take 
one of these wellness CBD products. The most common reasons people take them, people are grabbing them off a shelf, is for um, chronic pain, more mild than probably what they see their doctor for. Although I have had patients who have been on really hardcore drugs and pulled an over-the-counter CBD oil off the shelf and started taking it themselves for back pain and had had such a success even with those lower doses that they were able to come off of their morphine. Um, so it can have really profound, I mean, it's, it's a medicinal compound. It's not to say that it doesn't work. It's just at a lower dose, you're going to have different effects and everyone will respond differently. So one person will pull a CBD oil off the shelf for their chronic pain and they'll get an immense response. And the next person will pull the same bottle off the shelf, take the same amount and they'll say nothing happened because everyone's endocannabinoid system is different. It's slightly different. It responds slightly differently. So um, chronic pain is one of them, still inflammation from chronic pain in joints and so forth. So joint pain is a big one. Um, The other huge category is stress and burnout and anxiety because this is an epidemic in our culture. I'm I'm actually writing my second book now called The Resilience Blueprint because it's all about resilience and burnout and stress and all that stuff, which is just... It's a huge epidemic in our culture because of the way we live. We just live on hyper drive all the time. And that's really probably the other really, really common thing people use CBD for. So they might use it instead of a medication for their stress and anxiety, and they might use it just instead of nothing at all. Or I tell people to add it onto their meditation practice. I give them meditations to go along with taking their CBD and just use it as a tool to get their body into a more relaxed state. So it can help with relaxation. It can help with stress. It can help indirectly with sleep. If you take a really high dose of pure CBD, it's in most people, and again, everyone's brain's a little bit different how they respond, but in most people, a pure dose of CBD is not going to help them with sleep, like a sleeping pill, most of the time. But what it can help with is calming down the nervous system. So if we're vibrating up here and the nervous system's really just on all the time, we have a hard time winding down in the evening and at night because then we just expect our brains to be like, oh, okay, it's 10 o'clock, right? Okay, I'm going to get off my phone and go to sleep and nothing happens. Then we're like, oh God, why can't I fall asleep? So what the CBD can help with, just like other botanicals, and again, I use this with other botanicals. I don't just say, just go away and take some CBD. I'm using it with other botanicals, relaxation practices to wind down the nervous system, wind down the cortisol response, which is the stress hormone response. And that indirectly helps people get to sleep because when your cortisol, your stress hormones here and your sleep hormone is down here, then you can't get to sleep and you can't maintain your sleep. You get this fragmentation of the sleep. And it affects our sleep-wake cycles, how we wake up in the morning, and it affects our morning serotonin bursts, all that stuff. So CBD can help with this as well, a lot of people do find. And the dosage, I would say, well, how much do I take? And I go into this quite in detail in the book for every different type of situation you might want to try CBD, like over-the-counter and medical cannabis. But basically, the the one-liner is just start, start low, go slow. So start at a, a small dose. 10 milligrams once a day, 10 milligrams twice a day, and just slowly build it up over time and then just see how you feel. Keep a journal. And it's just really a self-guided form of therapy, especially when you're using the -the over-the-counter products. It's very safe for most people. And that's the nice thing about botanical medicine is it really is kind of empowering and self-guided. I actually made a I mean, I'm such a geek, but I made a little grid and wrote, when I started taking CBD oil, I would say, oh, I'll just see how my body reacts. So I wrote things like sleep, pain, anxiety, and just over a few weeks, just wanted to see if I had noticed any change. And 
If anything, mm-hmm. it just made me be more aware of my body. So just the mm-hmm. act of doing that, there's something about just checking in, isn't there? Yes. And to be honest, I'm not, in, you know, I don't think it did particularly help with my pain in my leg. I don't know whether it did help with my sleep, but I felt much more connected to my body. So in, in a way, there's yes. just something in that. There's medicine in, in just becoming that aware, isn't there, if you know what I mean? Absolutely. And that's what I find a lot of my chronic pain patients who, the threshold is if you need a prescription medicine for your pain, CBD oil over the counter, probably not going to cut it. But I used to say that full stop for all my patients. And then I had these, these cases on my wellness side of my practice where people, and they weren't lying to me, they were coming to me and showing me what they were taking and what they used to take. And they had got themselves off of morphine and other things from using this over-the-counter product. So there are exceptions. But in general, if I'm prescribing for someone, if I'm seeing someone with really bad chronic pain, I'm, I'm definitely going to be using some THC too. And are there any side effects that you'd be concerned about? Because I think... When, when you're younger, you hear about cannabis and then you hear about the munchies. If someone starts taking CBD oil for, to improve their sleep, for example, can they expect to maybe put on weight or does it not work like that? Not for the over-the-counter CBD oils. So generally speaking, the, the increase in appetite comes from THC and sometimes some of the other plant chemicals or the lack of those plant chemicals. So you know, full spectrum extracts. So if you have CBD plus all the other plant um, chemicals in there, there's some strains of cannabis that are really high in other plant chemicals, not CBD, not THC, but that helps suppress appetite. So it depends on the strain as well, what type of appetite response someone is going to get. And that's on the medical cannabis side. But in general, on the CBD wellness side, where you don't have THC, that's the main driver of the munchies. High THC tends to drive the munchies more so than in some people than others. So you can cut that with medical cannabis by reducing THC, switching strains, adding more um, CBD to kind of balance that effect out. And generally speaking, the short acting forms, the vaporized forms of higher THC will give people munchies more. But CBD oils, CBD over-the-counter products do not make people gain weight or um, give people the munchies. In, in fact, it might have an opposite effect on the metabolism. So how we manage sugar, like if you're a pre-diabetes person, if you already have type 2 diabetes, it might actually help you handle your blood sugar better, CBD. So you might find that your blood sugar improves and by virtue of the body handling sugar loads better, you actually might lose weight. So these are things that are just kind of early stage development, but a lot of research is being done on CBD to help with obesity and diabetes now. Wow. Okay. So opposite of what I thought. Okay. And then any other side effects that you should be concerned about or at least aware of before starting taking the CBD oil? Certainly because I'm a medical doctor, of course, I always have to say, you know, before starting any supplement, always check with your doctor first, make sure it's right for you. In reality, generally speaking, broad brushstrokes um, is quite safe for most people. But of course, if you're on one of those immune therapy drugs for, you know, some of those cancers, if you've had an organ transplant, if you are on epilepsy medication, if you're on certain medications, if you're on blood thinners, then, you know, always check with your doctor first. I have used them in a lot of those situations, but very controlled low doses 
devices and monitoring drug levels. So I, that's not like a DIY situation um, at home. Other than that, it's it's quite safe for most people. And the only side effects some people have if, if they have a low blood pressure. So I treat a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic Lyme and POTS, which is basically when you have a really low blood pressure and you can get dizzy really easily when you go from sitting to standing and you can get pain in funny places. It's like a, we think it's a dysregulation of the um, nervous system and people with POTS and deliciously Ella, the famous um, chef. I was going to say <laughs> deliciously Ella, yeah. Yeah. So she, she had POTS and that's how she got into her, all of her wellness practices and her cooking. So sometimes when they take, a, a people with POTS in general take a lot of CBD too quickly and they're not used to it, it might slightly lower the blood pressure a few points. So for most of us, we wouldn't notice, but if you have POTS and you're already really low, you might notice it a little bit more. So that's, that's one thing. Some people find too much CBD when they're not used to it, it can make them feel a bit dizzy some of the CBD strains in the over-the-counter products have been derived from a strain of the hemp plant that has high levels of this other compound called myrcene, which can make some people feel a bit relaxed or even sleepy. It's not super common, but if you're taking CBD and you're feeling more tired during the day, then I recommend switching products to see. And if someone's looking to buy a CBD oil, they've never bought one before, what are the things that they need to look out for? Because also it's been an explosion in the wellness world, isn't it? There seems to be so many products out there. It'd be great to hear from you what you think. Yes, this is a huge point of confusion. This is a whole section in the book because it's so important. Um, So basically, you know, it doesn't have to be a specific brand, but what you do want to look out for is that it has what's called a COA with the product, which means a certificate of analysis. What that means is that product has been tested by a third party, an independent laboratory, to make sure it's free of the bad stuff. So heavy metals, contaminants, pesticides, herbicides, large amounts of THC that shouldn't be there, all those things. And that it does actually have the amount of CBD that it says it has in it. Most reputable products will have a COA. So that's the first thing to look for. Most CBD oils that you find that go taking by mouth are not going to be well absorbed because CBD is fat loving and it's not absorbed easily into the body. So there's some higher tech products that are coming out now that are more generally more expensive, but tend to deliver a higher load of CBD at a lower dose, but they're, they're few and far between. I'm actually working on one of those products at the moment because I think that it, they can be so effective, but right now what you're seeing on the market is mostly kind of the low tech products, which are completely fine. You just have to take more of it and some, in many people find to get the same effect, but generally they're very safe as long as they have that COA and they're coming from a reputable brand. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. And so we've, that's all the kind of wellness, the legal CBD that's available. And then on the other side, we were talking earlier about the medicinal cannabis, which mm-hmm. is in the UK at least, it's been legal since um, 2018. Is that right? November 2018. Yep. And yet it doesn't seem, there hasn't been a huge take up, has there, in prescriptions and people actually being able to access it. And I'd love to know just a little bit more about that. Why is that the case? Is it the doctors aren't confident, is it? It's a very complex issue. So that is the really the center of my nonprofit and my volunteer work. I'm the vice chair of a society called the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society. The chair is uh, the wonderful Mike Barnes. 
uh, professor of neurology. So him and I worked together really since the since uh, November 2018, and he really had this brainchild of this society. He's been interested in cannabis for many years as a neurologist. Um, he's just been such an incredible advocate. So him and I started you know working on this, and basically the whole. So we do a lot of work around guidelines and legislation and do- educating doctors and educating. Um, politicians and the public and it's it's complicated so the the amount of prescriptions that have been written so far in the UK since the law changed there's only been two on the NHS and one of those prescriptions was already for a very very sick boy who is now much better because of medical cannabis who had epilepsy and his mother campaigned tirelessly and she she is the head of our our, our patient um division at the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society, Hannah Deacon. And basically, he already had a prescription when the law changed, so he doesn't really even count in that. So really, there's one in 18 months. Wow. So on the private side, there's been about, there's almost 500 prescriptions written out. That's not 500 patients, but that's 500 prescriptions, including the repeats. And I've, I've been involved with training some of those first doctors who have been prescribing those and mentoring those doctors. And the good news is they are completely dedicated and they're seeing more and more patients, but they're having to do it in the private sector. And these are wonderful doctors. They also work in the NHS. They would love to prescribe in the NHS. But they can't at the moment because they're getting blocked on many levels at the NHS trust level, at the clinical commissioning level. They're being told it's not cost effective. So it's it's a real struggle from that legislative kind of NHS. It's really the NHS. It's not, it's not the government. The government's actually been quite supportive. And the government has said you can prescribe as long as you're a GMC registered specialist. You can prescribe medical cannabis if you think it's in the patient's best interest for any condition. So the government's been quite supportive, but it's the NHS um, system, the NHS England has been very resistant. And there's a lot of negative guidelines that have come out. NICE, which is the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which delivers doctors' guidelines. They came out with very restrictive, quite negative guidelines. The Pediatric Neurology Society came out with very negative guidelines. They've, they've since kind of stepped that back a little bit, which is good. The MCCS, our nonprofit, came up with our own guidelines that we delivered to Downing Street because we thought we have to do something that's evidence-based and that kind of counters some of these almost kind of, I don't want to say hysterical, but quite, uh, I don't think the science that went into them was that unbiased and that that broad. Some of these other very restrictive guidelines. So you have the guideline issue and then you have the doctors. So then the doctors um, who are prescribing in the UK who are very open to medical cannabis, they're one group, but they're a small group. And then you have many other doctors who don't understand cannabis. It, within that group, you have many who are open to learning more about it, but you also have doctors who might have unscientific reasons, even that they're unaware of mentally for not wanting to be involved or uh, support medical cannabis, like moralistic judgments about the plant. Um, mm, there's such a stigma, isn't there, still to, on the plant? Huge stigma, huge stigma. So we're really, we're really having to start with the doctors. We have to really educate our colleagues because if we can't get our colleagues on board, it was the same in Canada, exactly the same situation, believe it or not, then we're really fighting an uphill battle because the doctors have to really lobby and work together to get NHS England on board um, and the doctor associations at the association level. So I I think we have a long way to go, but we are getting there. At least we have the private sector getting prescriptions and there's starting to be lots of real world data collection research studies, which I'm involved with a few of them in Project 2021, the drug science project. 
which is headed by the wonderful Professor David Nutt. And one of my friends who's a consultant psychiatrist is running that program, Dr. Chloe Sakal. So they're looking at data collection for medical cannabis patients right now in the private sector to utilize, to hopefully inform and reinform these guidelines. Okay, so that's promising at least, but it just it's seems promising. such a shame because I've had several people contact me in the cancer community asking for advice about cannabis and where they can maybe access it and a little bit more about if it's available on the NHS. And I've had to, because there's been quite se- several clinics opening in the last 18 months or so, isn't there? And the yes. problem is, is they come back and it's so expensive. It's so expensive. And I think, you know, just to give people an idea, they might not understand what numbers we're talking about. It's the prices come down by 50% already, which is amazing news. But where we started is crazy. So it's still costing between three to 600 pounds a month for someone with chronic pain. And for someone with a child with epilepsy or an adult with epilepsy for that matter, at least 1,200 pounds to 2,000 pounds a month. So families are having to fundraise for these medications with sick kids. Can you imagine being a parent with an epileptic kid, you have other kids at home, and then you're having to fundraise for your child's medication. And they're not doing it because they're, they love cannabis. They're doing it because their child is like really, really ill and they failed everything else. So I think we have a long way to go, but the prices are coming down, luckily. And just to change topic slightly, I'd love to know, we've been talking a little bit about how Canada is different from the UK and obviously in the States. Well, is, is cannabis legal in the States now? Or is it just certain states? Certain states. So, okay. oh, and I have to check the latest stats. California many... must be legal. Oh, yes, California. <laughs> I believe, so there's, is there 30... Ooh, I'm afraid to say this because I know I'm going to mess it up. It's changing all the time. But there's many, many states, over half the states have legal medical cannabis with a prescription. And then there's a smaller amount of states that have recreational cannabis available without a prescription. California is one of them. It's so confusing, isn't it? You've got legalization, decriminalization, different states yeah. and different countries doing different things. In Catalonia, in Spain, for example, it's decriminalized. So you can go to like a cannabis club, for example. Okay. And, and what do you think about the movement towards that? Is that where you think the UK should be heading? Do you have any concerns with that? I think there's always concerns. So, you know, when I'm wearing my medical cannabis hat, um, I wear many different hats. So when I'm wearing my doctor hat, of course, like I'm really talking about medical cannabis. I think it has to be really clear. When I'm wearing my, my harm reductionist and drug policy hat, then I'm talking about harm reduction. So when we talk about harm reduction from any drug, whether it's cannabis or whether it's heroin, um, we have to look at moving beyond these moralistic arguments and moving towards what actually reduces harm in a drug-using population. So for cannabis, you know, you look at the risk of harm, and this is where Professor David Nutt's research in the last 30 years of, of drugs is just so massive, and it was so um, instrumental in changing the way governments think about drugs. So you really want to look at what is the actual harm of a drug compared to other drugs, compared to prescription drugs, compared to the risk of people criminalizing themselves to get that drug on the black market. And when you look at this for cannabis, the equation really stacks up to, in the UK, we know that around 1.5 million people are accessing black market cannabis for medicinal purposes. Probably another a million and a half are using it recreationally. So these people are criminalizing themselves to access medical cannabis. They might be putting themselves at risk of uh, criminality, of violence, of getting sold something that's not cannabis spice, a, a drug that's a lot more harmful. So I, I do believe that definitely, you know, getting rid of the, the criminal penalty for cannabis is really instrumental in that. And, you know, if we did have recreational cannabis, just like we do in Canada, 
now with the same kind of regulations as we have with alcohol and cigarettes, then I think it it can be done in a way that reduces overall harm to the population. And there's always going to be challenges with that. But I think it's it's possible to learn from what worked and what didn't in Canada and potentially eventually maybe move towards something like that here. But I think it's it's going to take a long time. Well, thank you so much, because I know you being in the UK and coming over from Canada with all of your knowledge and the way that you're so passionate about educating doctors and really helping with policy change. I mean, this is how things shift, isn't it? We need people like you. And I know patients will be so grateful to have a doctor on their side really fighting their corner. So, yeah, thank you for everything that you do. And just to talk a little bit about your book, um, I know I've mentioned it a few times. So it's coming out in end of July. Is that right? July 23rd. Yeah. And who is it for? Is it for maybe clinicians or people who are just interested or absolutely everyone? It's definitely not written for clinicians. It's written for everyone. So I wanted to write it for anyone who's never tried CBD. So whether it's your grandma or whether they're stressed out moms, just like picking it up at the grocery store. And it's also written for clinicians too, because there's every chapter has a section about medical cannabis too. So it's about CBD and then medical cannabis for all the different conditions. Um, there's also a section on uh, all the different forms. So if you're wondering, oh my God, do I start with like a tincture or a gummy or inhaled forms? So it really is kind of a, it's a Bible. It's almost 400 pages, but you don't have to read the whole thing. You can just look to the in, the sleep chapter if you want to, or the stress chapter. But yeah, I just wanted to write something that was really accessible, but really, really well informed at the same time. It's so important because there has been so much misinformation out there and almost quite a lot of hype. You know, for a while, especially last year, you'd open up a paper or a Sunday Times supplement or whatever it was, and there would be quite a sensational article about CBD. And actually, of course, although we do have this incredible endocannabinoid system, it of course isn't a cure-all. It's not a panacea. So I think to have a voice like yours out there. I can't wait to read it. I'm really, yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you. I'll be sending you a copy. (laughs) What's the launch date? The 23rd of July in the UK. And it's already on Amazon um, for pre-orders now. Okay. Well, congratulations. And just the biggest thank you for being here and chatting with me. And yeah, I cannot wait to meet you in real life when I get back. I know. I can't wait. We're (laughs) going to have to sit in the park and have a lovely picnic and CBD infused cocktail, mocktails in my case, since I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And congratulations as well. Um, Danny, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to chat with you. You too, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for listening to our conversation today. I really hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please take a moment to rate and review. And if you'd like to connect, head on over to the Holistic Healing Project Instagram or my website, which is Dr. Lauren MacDonald. And I really look forward to connecting with you in the future. Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.